Welcome to the Greta Aurora Show. My guest today is Philip Tanzer. He is an artist and men's rights activist, originally from Germany. I had the pleasure of meeting him at the Split the Difference March for Men in London about a month ago. Hi, Philip. Thank you for taking the time. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Thanks a lot. I'm very interested in your views on masculinity. You recommended a book to me a few weeks ago, The Way of Man by Jack Donovan. I've been listening to the audiobook version and I absolutely love it. It, it presents okay. a very healthy common sense but traditional approach to masculinity. So I was wondering, are you a fan of traditional masculinity? I, I would say that I'm in love with traditional masculinity. So to me, it's, I'm not a fan of it. I think it's a, it's a spiritual concept. It's just like traditional um, or natural femininity. I think these are two incredibly powerful concepts that actually create our, that are part of nature and part of, they should be the cornerstones of our society. So uh, fan is not the right word. I think masculinity and femininity are the two ways of the world. Yeah, and it's a bit, bit demystifying, I guess, to, to say yeah. you're a fan of this thing. Yeah, yeah I, I agree completely. But how do we get around the fact that so many aspects of masculinity, even the ones described in this book, are considered toxic in society today? Well, everything, everything has a toxic side and has a holy or a, a benevolent and a malevolent side. Caring can be toxic. Um, love can be toxic. Everything can be toxic. And all the virtues that man have can be toxic as well if they are not channeled in the right ways. And in the book, The Way of Man, Jack Donovan makes a very clear distinction between being a good man and being good at being a man. And being good at being a man has no morals. Um, so he says that, for example, Scarface or Darth Vader are very masculine characters, but they're not good people, but they're very good at being man. So you can be a very good man without being a good man. For me, both things are important. I, I would like to be a good man, but I would also like to be a good person. There's this quote from the book that, that really resonated with me. He says, a man who is more concerned with being a good man rather than being good at being a man makes a well-behaved slave. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think it kind of explains the distinction quite well. The idea is that you can be a good man by focusing on the values that make a good person. And he talks a lot about how society tends to give these very conflicting messages to boys and men by encouraging them to just kind of be good people. But mm -hmm. there's not much talk about how, how to be a man and how to be good at being a man. I know a guy. I met him a couple, well, I met him two years ago and uh, he came back to my shop this year. And he is as far as I know, he's the highest ranking um, sociopath in the UK. 
he, he doesn't trick people, but he doesn't feel empathy for people that he's not connected to. He, he's an interesting case. So he, he was in prison for 22 years. And what did he uh, do? Um, well, he was in gang related fights and he was used by gangs um, to do some dirty, dirty work. And so he ended up in prison and he was in prison for, I think, if for 20 years and then they wanted to keep him longer, but they, they couldn't keep him longer uh, because of his condition or something. And he's just the sweetest person you can imagine. He, he's, he's a great person. And I, I met him and I immediately fell in love with him because he's so, you see what you get. And, and I felt like he doesn't hide anything, at least not to me. And I feel very sorry for him because he is born in the wrong century. If he had been born 100, well, 200, 300, 400 years ago, he would have been a knight or a soldier. And so he would have been able to put his qualities of, of killing people to good use. And the thing is, he doesn't care if he kills somebody he's, who tries to harm him or his, his family, but he's hyper-protective of people that he cares about. And in our society, that doesn't work anymore because the police takes care of that. You know what I mean? So he can't be- Take the justice in your own hands, basically. Yeah, he can't be the man that he was born to be. He, he was given all the tools to, to be a soldier or a, or a knight. But when he was young, he didn't have the right person to introduce him to, let's say, martial arts or, or or cage fighting, or a place where he could actually use his, his violence in a productive way. He wasn't introduced to that. He was introduced to a gang, and he expressed this violence in a gang circumstance, and that's why he ended up in prison. And I feel incredibly sorry for him because he has these ultra-masculine qualities that used to have value in the past, but he can't use them anymore. So I, I feel kind of sad for him for being born in the wrong century. So would you say that society's definition of masculinity, well, it has changed, obviously, but the idea of sociopathy, is, is that just another attempt at pathologizing these masculine traits or certain aspects of personality? Or would you say that he's actually sick by any standard? Not, not like the, the way that I met him. I would say he's like my dog who's snoring right behind me. So I've got, I have an American bulldog and these dogs are bred to fight and they are bred without any fear. And he, he's the cuddliest and nicest boy that you can imagine and all he wants to cuddle. But if he sees another dog, he, he, he wants to fight. The thing about sociopaths and psychopaths is that they're very good at imitating human emotions and, and they're very deceptive about it. So how do you know? That's, that's, you know it's well, that's the thing. I, I, I don't sense any of that. Obviously, I could be wrong, but I talked to prof professional killers before. I was introduced to them uh, by my mother because my mother was married to a professional killer and uh, he was an asshole but I was introduced to two or three others uh, when I was a kid. And for me, it's very 
easy to, to differentiate the, the actions of a person from the person himself. So if somebody kills people, I don't condone what this person does, but I can still get on with this person. And it doesn't mean that I can't trust this person. Uh, there are certain people that I can't trust. And to be honest, I have a much more of an issue with people that smile to my face and that are nice. And I'm like, ooh, I, I see be behind your niceness, there is something that I can't trust. But with people that are a bit colder in some ways, I'm like, well, well, you, at least you don't hide who you are. And you're like, well, I could, like, if you're on my killing list, I can kill you. And to be honest, I wouldn't really have an issue with it. But as long as you're not on my killing list, you can trust me. I'm like, that sounds fair. <laughs> I try not to be on your killing list. Do you think men used to be more like this guy you described in the past? I, th I think they had to. So I think in the past, people had less of a choice, depending on which, where you lived. And so, for example, if you are born to a working class family, you're born in a rough environment and you have to be rougher. If you were born into the royal family, well, you had an education in dancing and in 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 poetry and stuff like that. So I, I, I think it depended on which time you grew up in and which area you grew up in and what your class was. Um, so I think that in certain classes, men that were naturally softer actually had to toughen up because otherwise they would have been bullied by others. So they had to toughen up. In other areas, you didn't have to. I, I think that all through the centuries, there were always men that were softer, less masculine, and men that were born more masculine. For example, when you look at an alpha male, you will identify an alpha male immediately, and usually because they're born this way. I think um, if you try to imitate being an alpha male, so for example, I'm not an alpha male at all. Um, I can work on being more masculine, but I, I'm not a born alpha male. I'm a beta or whatever. So I'm in the hierarchy. I'm somewhere more in the middle or on, on the top. I like to follow, but only somebody who is inspiring. If somebody has natural masculine traits, I'm like, I'm going to follow this guy because this is an alpha male. And I think that has all, always existed. I I don't think that you had more alphas in the past. I, I think the amount was pretty much always the same, but maybe in the past they were more obvious they, because there were more places where they, they were a perfect fit. I joined the military uh, when I was 17 years old and I was a complete pacifist, so I was against the military. And then I joined the military and I'm like, wow, this is, I, I love this. This is my place. The hierarchy was perfect. And there were, there were people that I really loved to follow, but I was very critical. So if I could sense weakness in them, I got really kind of angry with them or very disappointed. An example, there was one superior that we had and he was incredibly strict. And I really liked his strictness and I could trust him. And then one evening they all got drunk and he didn't show up to work in a fit state and none of them did. And 
I was I had only started to be in the military three weeks ago and I was really angry because I'm like, if you drink in the evening, I fucking expect you to do your job in the morning because how can I respect you? How can I follow you in war if you're not fit to do your effing job? Yeah, so to go back to your, your question, I don't think that in the past men were much different. I think that the whole spectrum so if, if this is the spectrum of man to, well, in the past, very masculine, very soft, I think the whole spectrum moved more towards soft because our society moved towards soft. We are less masculine because we don't have to be masculine, but I think the, you always had softer men and harder men, but the harder men in the past were much harder than the harder men are now, and the softer men now are far softer. But I think as soon as our society goes back into war or something like that, I think the whole thing would change again and shift back into the middle, at least a little bit. Jake Donovan is very much against the idea of the blank slate, obviously. And I'm just at that point in the book where, where he starts to discuss evolutionary psychology and, and the biological basis of masculinity. So if we take it for granted that masculinity and masculine traits are biologically necessary and therefore inherent, then it cannot be healthy what you just described about society moving to become softer. It just cannot be healthy for men to kind of be forced to go against their nature. I agree with you, but I, I think that's a very new thing. I think in the last 10 years, maybe to 15 years, I think men are in, intentionally being broken into being less manly. I think before that, men just became softer because society was soft. And that's fine. It's just like if you... And you mean safe, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so safe. basically not being constantly in war mode or fight mode. Yeah, and, and also we become we become complacent. Do you know the movie Wall-E? Wall-E? I haven't seen it. Okay, so it's about this robot and it's in the future and humanity is almost extinct and the rest of humanity lives on this spaceship. And they, they don't have to do anything anymore. So they only sit in like floating chairs and they're all fat and they don't even talk to each other anymore. They only have screens in front of them. And if, if society makes everything easier for you, you just became, become lazy and complacent. It's just normal. It's, it's the same for animals. I mean, if you're surrounded by fruit and stuff like that, you don't have to work for it and they become lazier and fatter. Um, I think that's part of nature. If you give somebody everything, they will become lazy. That's natural. It's not good, but it's natural. But I think what's happening in the last couple of years, it's an um, intentional destruction of masculinity where they try to destroy man. And I think this like softening, it's not good for man, but it's also, it doesn't break them. It just makes us unhappy and lazy and stuff like that. But what's happening just now breaks us uh, because we are being told that we're bad and that, that all of our masculine traits are something that we need to reject. And that's, that's the horrible thing. In the past, masculine traits were rightfully so glorified because what we men need 
is respect. And we need to, because we sacrifice ourselves, we go to war and we work really hard. I mean, this is the, the cliche. We work really hard, we sacrifice ourselves, we sacrifice ourselves for our families. And the least that we can expect is a thank you. It, it's great that you're doing it and keep doing it. And, and wow, because you're doing that, I respect you as a man. And now you're disrespected for doing it. And we can't deal with that. It completely breaks us. I guess one could argue that there's no reason anymore for men to sacrifice themselves on that level. And obviously, when we don't witness that sacrifice firsthand in our everyday lives, then we kind of forget. We become very ignorant about the utility of masculinity, I guess. But, but it's also a very strange dilemma because everyone wants to live in a safe society. You know, no one wants to worry about... No, no, no. Why do people do bungee jumping? Why do people, why do especially well, young car, car races or, or, or go into bar fights and stuff like that? Because they don't want to live in a safe society. That's the whole thing. You want to measure yourself. I'm from Germany. Germany is a very safe country and, and I grew up safe and I... I I have to say, I like, overall, I like to feel safe. But now I'm like, Germany is safe, but boring. And the safety takes away your freedom. And now I'm like, now I could imagine living in America where it's not as safe, but more freedom. And I'm like, well, I'd rather have that. And I, I'd rather, I'd rather try to survive like skin animals, go to Alaska. It's so fucking boring, this life where you don't have to survive. Beginning of this year in March, I went to a man's retreat and it was like being in, in the forest for a week and we had to build bonfires and we, uh, we were fighting. And uh, it, I feel so much more like myself. I go swimming into the, in the sea every morning. Yeah, it's, it's freezing cold. So I go running, then I run into the sea and then I scream at the, at the horizon like as loud as I can. And it's, it's, like a, it's like a tiny uproar of masculinity because, because the rest of my life, I, I just function. And I wish I could, I wish there was more and I wish I was surrounded by, by, guys where I could just do more of that. But it's really hard in our society. Uh, like Jack Donovan, who, who wrote The Way of Man, he wrote three other books and they are about tribalism and how you can create a tribe. The books weren't really for me, I have to say, they were because the books are much more, what would you do in the circumstances of a zombie apocalypse? <laughs> while I was reading his book and they're still really well written and I still recommend them. Absolutely. Uh, I was thinking if I had to form a tribe, who would be in my tribe and who wouldn't be in my tribe. And I have to say all of my friends out. <laughs> I love, I love them to bit, but they would be dead weight for me. I, I would have, and they're because they're good people, they're good men, but they're not good at being men. And my girlfriend at the time, I, when I was reading this book, I was like, oh, sorry, but my girlfriend, she'd be out. <laughs> it sounds really harsh, but... What qualities do women have to have in a situation like that? Not be dead weight. 
carry at least your own weight. You don't have to fight. And, and it has to be tough too. Yes, you don't have to protect the parameter, but I can't constantly take care of you because I have to protect. Oh, this sounds horrible. I mean, it, it sounds like I'm a super prepper or something like that, but I have to, I have to know that she can skin the rabbit and, and by the way, I'm a vegetarian, but that she can skin the rabbit and then she, that she can at least look after herself and after the children. So I don't, I can trust her with taking care of that. But if I'm constantly worried, constantly, is she going to manage? Is she crying and stuff like that? I'd be like, I can't do it all. Does that make sense? So it's more about being emotionally strong rather mm -hmm. than physically and, and, and I mean, obviously, almost all women and all men have the capability to do that because look at all the women that had to make it through war times. They cry. They had to get on with shit. And to be honest, I think my ex-girlfriend, she would have upped her game as well. She would have found her role and uh, it would have been hard in the beginning, but then either you toughen up or you die. That's just how it is. I mean, the survival reflexes really kick in yeah. in that sort of situation. And that's one theory. I think it's quite a widely accepted theory about mental illness these days. Because obviously depression, anxiety, stress is much more common in the West, in first world mm -hmm. countries. And they yeah. say that because we have the potential in our psyche to panic and, mm -hmm. and to stress. But if there's nothing to trigger that in our everyday lives, it's still gonna manifest in some way. It's almost like an autoimmune system failure. Overreactive response. Yeah. How much of The Way of Man did you listen to so far? About half, I'm about halfway. Halfway. So when, when I recommended the book to you, I said that you might find it difficult or challenging. Yeah, I was a bit hesitant, exactly because you said that. I was a bit hesitant mm -hmm. about it. But, I mean, obviously I'm a woman, so I'm not trying to, I'm not listening to it with like an educational ear. I'm not expecting to learn much about myself or anything, but I grew up around men. Most of my close friends are men. I was brought up by my dad. So I have observed a lot of what he's talking about in everyday life. Yeah. I do have some experience with those things secondhand, obviously, and it does make sense to me. And so the four aspects, the four main aspects he talks about are strength, courage, mastery, and honor. Yeah. And just going back to your experience in the military, I, I, just, I just thought when you, when you talked about the guys who got drunk and then couldn't show up in a disciplined manner later, that was basically them failing to be honorable in a way, right? Honorable and maybe there is an aspect of mastery as well, because I mean, if you can't, if you can't actually execute what you're capable of doing, there's a lack of, of, of mastery, you, because it's also the mastery of your own body. If you don't know how much you can drink and still go to work the next morning, you fucked it up. You, you don't master your own body. So for example, when I was in the military, there was one night when, when I got horribly drunk as well, because my uh, lieutenant, it was his birthday 
and I didn't drink alcohol at all at that time, but to his honor, I drank a lot. And I got sick, I vomited it out, and I actually fell into the fireplace and got a little bit burned. And we were, we were in the forest when that happened. We were in the forest. There were people, I have to say, there were guards. So we were allowed to get drunk because people were guarding the place. Still a little bit unprofessional, but we were allowed to do that. As long as the guards don't get drunk. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there, like, all the, all, there were enough people that, that weren't drunk. But still, it's a little bit unprofessional, but still. The next morning at, at 5 o'clock, I was there. And I didn't have a hangover and I just functioned. I know my body and I just function. In that regard, I'm not good at everything, but in that regard, I'm a machine. I can just switch myself on and I can work for hours and hours and hours and my body doesn't collapse up to a point where I'm like, now you can collapse and then I collapse. So I know my body and that's my mastery. And I think they failed at their mastery at recognizing how, how much they can drink and still be like fit in the morning. So it's a lack of self-knowledge, self-awareness and discipline at the same time. Self-discipline. But yeah. also one of the kind of side effects of having high testosterone levels in men is risk-taking and overestimating one's ability. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's why a healthy balance mm -hmm. is important. But going back to the natural born alpha, the natural born alpha is not the one who uh, stupidly runs into battle without any plan. The, the real alpha has a plan. He can also lead people. So I'm a comic book fan and I, I read Marvel comics and Captain America is the natural, well, after he, he becomes Captain America, he's the naturally born alpha. And he's not well depicted in the movies because it's the, it's the wrong actor. Chris Evans is a softie. He, he, he's not a, a manly man. He has muscles, but I wouldn't follow him. And the thing is, you, you needed an actor to play Captain America who says, even if you don't know him, even if he doesn't wear a uniform, he tells you, you have to do this. And you don't question him because he oozes authority. Nobody would ever question him. That's, that's a real alpha. So Captain America is the naturally born alpha. And he wasn't depicted that way in the, in the comic books. But he has a plan. That's the thing. People follow him not because he's the strongest. People follow him because he has a plan and he... He shows compassion, but he shows strength and, and, and courage and all these things, the tactical virtues. I spoke to Paul Elam a couple of weeks ago, and I, and I actually asked him about some of these things, whether men should be more emotional or whether it's important for men to express themselves in an emotional manner. And I also asked him whether he thought maybe mothers should not encourage their boys to want to be tough guys because obviously there's a lot of talk in the media these days about how bullying is bad and there's this misunderstanding i guess of the natural interactions between little boys and anyway paul elam said that he wants men to be strong and there's a very nuanced view there because he basically said that 
men must master their emotions. So there's that aspect of mastery there. So it's not about not being emotional. It's not about being completely emotionless, like a psychopath, but it's about staying in control. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the most important masculine traits. And I think that's also one of the traits that's most misunderstood by feminists when they talk about toxic masculinity. You could maybe argue that it becomes toxic at the point where you lose control of it. But I, I just hate the idea of any aspect of masculinity being toxic, to be honest. Yeah, I think the original term toxic masculinity actually comes from the manosphere. So it comes from early men's rights groups, I think from the 70s. And they were the mesopoetic men's groups. And I hope I got the term right. Um, they were the kind of men that would meet in the forest around a bonfire and uh, like talk about their experiences of masculinity. And they were all about uh, healthy masculinity in connection with nature, but also in connection with their masculine feelings. And they said, and I hope I get this right, they said that toxic masculinity was bottled up emotion when you actually like don't express your anger and if you don't express your things and if you actually become self-destructive. Now, men have to be in control of their emotions. And I think for men, it's incredibly important to be able to restrict your emotions. That is super important for a man, but you need a place where you can let go of it. If, uh, one of my comrades from the military, he went running. And he, he said when he went, was in the forest running, that's when he could get rid of all the stress, of all the anger. I can do it when I'm at the beach and scream at the, at the horizon. When I was at the, uh, this man's gathering in the forest in March, it was one of the best experiences of my life, I have to say. And I'm actually, I'm talking about that in my speech for this year's International Conference on Men's Issues. So my talk is about that. We were in the forest for a week and it was a weird mix of people. A lot of them were, I would say they were broken in their masculinity. I was a little bit disappointed that very few masculine men were there. But then I realized that all of them had really important qualities that I could learn from and that we could learn from each other. And we had to do certain tasks. For example, we did fighting stuff, like a wooden, I actually have it standing in the corner here. And uh, so we had to do a fighting stuff or we had to learn how to stalk, like stalk animals, not women. Well, we didn't stalk the animals, but we learned how to do it. It was limited, but we learned how to do it. And it was great because you became much more aware of your senses and you were walking barefoot through the forest. So you felt the forest and stuff like that. It was really good. And in between these lessons, we went back to the bonfire, sitting around the bonfire. And you had a talking stick or a talking staff. And only the person who was holding the staff was allowed to talk you had the right to talk and it would go around and you would talk about your experience and you would say oh this exercise was really good and i felt like this i felt like that and at one point every single one of us 
broke down. We, and, and it wasn't planned. That's the thing. It wasn't planned at all. And we were just talking and then, and I, I told them how, how afraid I am that I will never have a family and that I have so much love to give and that I want to raise children. And, and I was just sitting there just crying my eyes out. And all the other guys were just sitting there. One just put his hand on my shoulder and it was this place of, of safety and, and masculine safety. Nobody judged you for, your, for, for what you were experiencing. And there were some guys, even the teachers, and one of the teachers, he was like a Viking, strong, two meters tall, and like rough as fuck. And he opened up about hurting somebody at one point in his life. And he was just sitting there crying his eyes out. And we were just sitting there as brothers and and nobody, like, we didn't give him a hug because he didn't need a hug. We were there. We listened. And there were moments, like, a moment that actually didn't work for me, but we went into the forest and we were supposed to talk to a tree. And you would just talk about all your issues and stuff to a tree. Didn't work for me at all because at that moment I didn't have any issues. And I was like, well, hey, tree, I'm... I'm doing really well. <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, I hope you're doing well as well. But while I was talking to this tree, I heard screams in the forest of people just screaming at their tree. Men need to learn certain techniques, how to connect with each other. But these are ancient techniques. These are old things. And, and in the past, and Jack Donovan talks about that as well. And he actually has a whole book about that, about initiation rites, different cultures taught boys how to become man. And they usually had, and, and you talked about that before, before we went online, suffering. You had to endure pain. You had to show your courage. It's incredibly important for a man to be welcomed into manhood. It's the same for women. Women are being welcomed into womanhood with their period. And in old traditions, when you became a woman, the older women would welcome you into womanhood. That doesn't happen anymore. All we have is sex education, but it's, it's sterile. It's, it's, it's not personal because they just tell you in general, but not you personally. They're, they're not there for you. And nobody's there for these young men, these boys to become men and to say, these are your responsibilities. These are your duties. This is what you can do with your masculinity. Nobody's there to teach them. It's really interesting that you brought up initiation because I've always kind of felt that women are just are born women. You know, there isn't any special test you have to take to be considered a woman by society, whereas we tell men to man up, to act like a man all the time. I disagree with you. I think to be a real woman, you have to be a mother or you have to care. I think you can't be a real man without being a father either. There is something missing. But it's not an initiation though, is it? Yeah, well. I think the equivalent, I know what you're saying, but the equivalent of the male initiation, as you pointed it out, I think it's a woman getting her period. And mm -hmm. it's just as, as natural as it could be. And it is considered a kind of a step. But with men, there's no such very obvious sign or, you know, at which they become men. So maybe that's why 
society had to come up with something, a test or something. I, I, I agree with that to a certain extent, but so my father's here. He, he, vis he came up to Scotland to visit me and my father and I, we get on really well now after 25 years of not really being a father and a son. And since I moved to Scotland, since I built my house, since I made him proud, he helped me building my house as well. So we connected, we became father and son, and we started to respect each other. And a few days ago, I asked him, do you feel like an adult or do you feel like an adult impersonator? And first he was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I, 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 feel, I still feel like a boy and I feel like I pretend to be an adult. Building a house made a difference. Having a job, like carrying my own weight, definitely makes a difference, but I don't have responsibility. I can just fuck off. Um, and, and I feel like having children, true, having your period or for a man doing this initiation is the first step into adulthood. It's the first step. It's a prerequisite for a young man to go out into the wilderness and prove that he's capable of defending himself and therefore yeah. others too. So there's the prerequisite of having a family and then having yeah. a family is kind of the fulfillment of your true self. I don't think it's your true self. I think it's your tamed self because both women and men have the rough energies. I think for women it's chaos and for men it's, it's the fighting instinct and hierarchical structures, I think. But they can be both quite out of control, uh, both for men, the sexuality, also for the woman, the sexuality. And I think when you become a parent, you really have to fucking tame this because you can't be a bachelor anymore. You can't go crazy. And, and you see that both in women and in men, when they become fathers, their hormones do something to them and they're like, calm down. And they're like, I have to take responsibility. There's this little person and this little person needs me and I can't drive my motorcycle at hundred something miles per hour. So I think becoming a parent is that next step. And I think it takes some masculinity away from you, but it gives you a new masculinity. It, it takes a little bit away from the Jack Donovan masculinity and gives you a little bit more of the Jordan Peterson uh, masculinity. And Jack Donovan talks about that in the book. He says, you don't need to be strong to be good at being man. You can be very intelligent and the mastery and Jordan Peterson represents the mastery of the mind. And my ex-girlfriend, she found Jordan Peterson incredibly attractive because he's so intelligent. Because you brought up fatherhood and motherhood. I mean, neither of us are parents, so we're not the best people to talk about this, but I was thinking about it the other day, actually. And I think that, and again, feel free to disagree with me, but for women, it's more obvious how to be a mother than it is for men how to be a father because when you're a woman you give birth you, you talked about how hormone levels might change in fathers mm -hmm. that recently become fathers and i'm sure i'm sure that's the case but in women it's really extreme obviously mm -hmm. because the estrogen really has to kick in so that you can mm -hmm. lactate and all that and and they just talk about how again it must be such a magical experience when you just form that connection with that little baby and and you just know what to do. And do you actually think that man, like a new father, has the same instinctive level of just knowing what to do? Yes, yeah. But so the thing is, 
biologically, the child just, just doesn't need the father in the first two years, not as much. And, and the father doesn't need a strong connection to the baby in the first two years because the father needs to go out and hunt and protect the family. So there shouldn't be a strong connection between the father and the child in the first two years, biologically speaking, not, not in our society. The father is actually not well equipped to look after the child the first one and a half, two years. And once the child really starts to actually do something, meaning running around, uh, climbing things, that's when the father comes in because the father's like, oh wait, this thing is doing something. It's, it's running. I, I can throw things at it and I can, I can train it. And I can, for example, a friend of mine, she was looking after my dog. I was looking after her dog. When they were at hers, she would cuddle with them and she would train them and well, like, or give them treats and she would be the mom. When they were at my place, I would smack them around and just roughhouse. And so when they came to my place, they would immediately start running around and like creating happy chaos. And we would all fight with each other and we would be on the floor and it really bothered her. She was like, oh my God, that's so dangerous. Or, and I'm like, no. <laughs> and I was just like hitting them and they loved it. But they, when they w went to her place, they immediately went on the couch and wanted to cuddle. It's, it's the two things that come natural. And I, I think men don't have to learn how to be a father. I think men have to learn to be a father like a mother, which isn't their role. It becomes more their role in our society. And we can learn if, if, if the mother dies or if you have to look after your children because the mother is not there, then you have to fill both roles. And my father had to do parts of that, but we were already like 10, 11 years old. It was too late. <laughs> it was too late for that. But a father and a mother can try to fill the two roles, but they will never really succeed because it doesn't come natural to them. So no, I don't think that fathers have to learn anything. Um, the only thing that fathers have to know in the first three years is don't hurt your child. For the, for the mother, it comes more instinctively to be careful with the child. I think it's maybe more, care, more difficult for a man not to hurt the child accidentally. Um, but after that, just go for it. <laughs> you really do describe that balance between the motherly and fatherly influence because I talk, I've talked about this a lot in my videos that mothers are very protective of their children, especially with young boys. Once the testosterone starts to kick in and they, they want to climb as high as possible and, and all that. And the mothers always try to protect them. It's like, you know, don't, don't do that. It's dangerous. And that just misses the point because obviously that little boy, all he wants is experience danger. And you need a man there to really understand what's going on. Sure, but you need both. You need both because if the father, for example, if he's like, oh, let him climb and the mother says, well, at least put something like a blanket or something you underneath. You need to balance so, it out. You need exactly. I mean, we are made to work together and, and th that's the thing. We are made to, women are designed to restrict men on a personal level. But now women are restricting men on a political and on, on a societal level and, and like society who is very, which is very feminized now tells men that everything they do is bad. 
well, in a, in a relationship, sometimes women have to tell men, come on, man, slow it down a little bit. But not on a societal level, not, not like it's happening now. Like society is just nagging and telling men that they're shit all the time. And it's, it's very unhealthy for us. So talking about danger and risk-taking, in the men's rights movement, you have people talk about male disposability, which, yeah. which is a concern I really sympathize with. But aren't these two things kind of at odds? Because if we really value yeah. courage and strength in men, it's inevitable that they're going to be expected to sacrifice themselves at some point. It's like you're being prepared. I would say the men's rights movement is white feminine. It, maybe it has to be feminine. This is going to upset some people, but that's okay. Well, it, it, that, again, that's what my talk at ICMI will be about. And I, I, I will piss off some people. Uh, do you know Dr. Warren Farrell? Yeah. So for me, Dr. Warren Farrell is the dream man of feminists. And I mean, he does an incredible job and I, I love his work and stuff like that. But as a man, to me, he's weak. But he is the representative of a lot of what man, the men's rights, uh, parts of the men's rights movement are. And that's absolutely fine. I think, and looking at laws and looking at inequality is a very feminine thing in some ways. So Jack Donovan is not a men's rights activist. He's part of the manosphere of like new masculinity. When you look at 21 convention, that's where all the like the tough guys and the self-improvement guys, bodybuilders and, and all of these guys are. And there are some connections to the men's rights movement, but overall they are not the same. And I would say that in the men's rights movement, you find a lot of people that are broken and that suffered and that want to protect other men from suffering. In the 21 convention part of the manosphere, it's more look after yourself. It's not my job to look after, like it's not my job to improve society for you. You have to improve yourself so that you don't fail in society. But both sides need each other because even the strongest man will break if his children are being taken away by a legal system that is completely fucked up. No matter how tough you are, this is something you can't deal with because a base trait of man is justice. It might also be a female trait. I'm not sure of that, but like for me, I can't deal with injustice being done to me and other people. It's, I, I want to mm, just fight against it. And if these guys from the manosphere, if these fathers, like they built up their body, they built up their mind, they, they made the best version of masculinity of themselves. And then society takes away their children legally and, and the police stops them from, from having access to their children, they will still commit suicide. If you give them something to fight against, where you can win, they will fight. But if the system betrays you and lies, you can't fight it. And that's why we need men's rights activists. That's why these laws need to be changed. But 
the men's rights activists have to look after themselves. And I think that's where they can learn something from the manosphere. Like, look after your body and, and, and be the best version of yourself that you can be while still fighting for men's rights. It's, it's mind and body at the same time. It's interesting that you, you brought up Warren Farrell and you said that it's kind of a feminine way of doing things to think about rights. Jordan Peterson kind of helps balance this out a bit because he talks about responsibility as the other side of the coin because obviously my right is someone else's responsibility and we don't talk about that enough. Mm. But Jordan Peterson himself has quite a few feminine traits as well and I he, and, and, and I think it, he but he's so well balanced I think he's he's a bit like Jesus uh, because I think Jesus is also very well balanced he ha, he's the rebel and he when he goes to the temple and throws over the the desks of the I don't know how you call them the guys that change money so he throws over the desks and he he's a, like collectors. yeah yeah exactly so he's a real rebel and, and he's a revolutionary, but at the same time, he's full of compassion. And he, to me, he's, he has male and feminine traits very well balanced. And I think Jordan Peterson is a bit like that. He's very soft-spoken, but don't challenge him. He will, he's so strong and so eloquent and he's so dominant in his intelligence. That's his masculinity. Um, so he's very well very well balanced. When you look at Paul Elam, Paul Elam is masculine. He's a masculine man. Warren Farrell is a feminine man. We need all of these different aspects. And to be honest, Paul Elam, he pisses people off. Warren Farrell, he gets to talk to politicians. They listen to him because he's soft-spoken and he doesn't come across as a threat. So sometimes you need sometimes you need the soft approach to actually get into places of power but the young men that are disenfranchised they need more somebody like paul elam or jordan peterson or jack donovan but coming back to thinking too much about rights being feminine warren farrell explained this very well in the myth of male power that he basically says that both men and women are put off by men who complain. A group of men is just very unlikely to come together and then complain and fight for their rights because it's not a good look. Yeah. So in, in that sense, I guess you're right, but I guess there's some evolutionary utility in that because a society needs strong men, but do we still mm -hmm. have that? I mean, I guess men should be allowed to complain in today's society, right? That's a good question. Even Paul Elam said men should complain. I think that men should complain based on injustice because that's kind of saying this is not right. Unfortunately, they will not be heard. And when men only complain when they're broken and people don't listen to broken men. Once it's too late. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's why you will barely find any man in the men's rights movement who hasn't lost their children or something like that. And the, the men that haven't lost their children yet, they're like, what are you complaining about? 
uh, just get on with life and, and, and then they lose their children. And they're like, oh shit, now I know what you're talking about. But they only, they only understand it for a very short time and they only understand it until they either kill themselves or until they start a new family and move on because that these are the only two options for man you either lose or you well and and losing is either killing yourself or becoming an alcoholic and depressed depressed or you move on and start a new family and accept that you you've lost your last fight and the only people that make it into the manosphere are people that i think are socially awkward and usually they don't have real how many how many people do you have in the men's rights movement that are in a functional relationship not many i would think i mean i'm i'm single um and once i have a relationship i know that i have to i won't leave the men's rights movement but i have to take a step back because you can't be happy in a relationship and constantly complain about the injustices in the world. It, it doesn't work well. Or you, you need a proper schedule and you have to say, okay, Monday and Tuesday, I'm a men's rights activist. The rest of the week, I'm, 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 I'm a happy father and I don't, and I'm not paranoid about you taking away my children. It's not, it's not easy to be a men's rights activist and, and, and be open to to love and be open to a relate. That's why you have so many MGTOW men going their own way. It's too dangerous. I'm not like that. I'm aware of the danger, but I'm, I'm the kind of person. <sighs> but you said you needed danger. In the well, it's, it's the same with COVID and it's the same with moving to America or living in America. I'd rather have the danger and the freedom than safety and, and, and no freedom. You must love that you're living during a pandemic. It must be a really exciting time for you. <laughs> no. To me, a relationship is the bigger danger. So, so actually, like, I would love to, be, because this is what I know. I've been a single all my life. I'm comfortable being alone in all of this. The, the adventure is being a partner and being, being a father and giving up freedom. That's the real adventure. That's, that's, that's the danger in some ways. Um, if you just keep doing what you, what you know, it's not interesting. The grass is always greener on the other side. I've got friends from the military. They, they're like, oh, your life is amazing. You just moved to Scotland and you did your own thing. And I have five children. And I'm like, you have five children and you have a wonderful wife. And you <laughs> so we want what we don't have. And I'm 42 years old, almost 43 years now. And I'm done with this shit. I, I want responsibility. I, I want a family. I just want to go back to Warren Farrell for a little bit, because one of his big teachings, I guess, is, is that both sexes should be liberated from gender roles. But you well, you said it before that you believe that society by default should be organized according to more conservative values and then everything else should be tolerated, but the basic structure should be conservative. So where do this freedom to define who you are fit in? Did you watch the movie Billy Elliot? A long time ago. Okay, so about the boy that comes from a very working class background and he wants to do ballet. 
So he wanted to do ballet. What was the movie about? What did he have to do to do ballet? He had to fight. And I think we don't need to be liberated to immediately get everything we want. I mean, I walked around, I, I, I dressed as Marilyn Manson or Prince Marilyn Manson. So I had like a feather boa, I had makeup, nail varnish, like fishnet suits and stuff like that. And by the way, at that time I was in the military. So I went to the military dressed like that. And during the day I would wear my uniform. In the evening I would just change into my like latex outfits and stuff like that. And and the thing is, I never had any problems with that because I was a good soldier and because I people could tell that I'm not insecure about myself. So I want people to be allowed to express yourself the way you want to express yourself. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to fight for it. Like, no matter who you are, if you come from a working class background and you want to go to university, you have to maybe fight against your parents because your parents might not support you. And I tell you, if you come from uh, an academic background, your parents are both doctors, and you want to become like a hairdresser, you have to fight against your parents because they're like, no, we want you to study. You have to fight for yourself. Doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, doesn't matter what way you choose. And if you expect society to be so open that you're never challenged, we live in a horrible society where you can't grow up. So the whole liberating from gender stereotypes, I'm like, if you want to fight against stereotypes, fight against stereotypes. I'm, I'm a fan of stereotypes because I'm a friend of norms. I have always been abnormal, but I didn't want society to be abnormal. I was happy to challenge society and I'm very happy that I was allowed to. I mean, in other countries, I would have been killed for, for having relationships with a man. I'm glad that, I, that I'm not being killed for that. But I also don't want bisexuality and I don't want that to be the norm. It would be fucking boring if everything is the norm and nothing is the norm. So Berlin, <laughs> sorry for jumping around, but if you're in Berlin, in a certain part of the city, everybody looks cool. You see women dress wearing like beautiful dresses, but then wellies to the beautiful dresses because they want to show you that they don't care. And then the next person has a really weird head because they want to show you that they don't care. Everybody looks like a fucking artist. Everybody looks very individualistic. So they all look boring. They all end up looking the same, like hipsters. They all exactly. look so different and they're all the same. Exactly. If everybody's different, they're all the same. And Jack Donovan makes a very good point when he talks about how in the LGBT community, uh, it has become more mainstream these days, that they talk about how you should honor diversity. And he talks about how the word honor completely loses its meaning. Oh, that's a good point. Because when you when you want to honor diversity, it means you demand honor by default. Honor Absolutely. is necessarily a hierarchy. So if everyone is honored, then it just doesn't mean anything. Nobody's, nobody is honored. 
It doesn't mean shit. And that's a very good point that Jed Donovan makes. I don't like the word respect because it's, it's being used completely in inflationary. Respect is something that should be earned. But there are two respects. There is base respect, there's human respect, where it's like, but that's more politeness. And it's, and, and from a, I'm a Christian, or yeah, I'm a spiritual person, and I would say, I respect life. Um, and when I meet a person, I respect their humanity, I respect their, their life, their base value. And depending on how you act, I go down with this respect, or I go up with this respect, but that's the, that, that's the earned respect. That's, and and the, the purest form of that earned respect is honor. Um, but I would say that honor and respect, there are two different tastes to it. I would say that honor to me is something almost holy. And I go back to this holy masculinity. In Germany, we don't use the word hero for people. We only use the word hero for mythical people. We use the word heroic for heroic actions. So for example, if, if you save a person and you risk your own life, that was heroic. That doesn't make you a hero because we don't know the rest of your life. If you act like that 24 seven all the time, then you would be a hero potentially, but really only after your death. <laughs> So from a German point of view, it would be weird to call a soldier or a firefighter a hero because he might be a horrible person in his, his or her private life. So we would just say they do something heroic every now and again. Is this, this Hungarian? Oh, oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So for us, calling soldiers and stuff heroes there's something positive and something negative to it. Because if you call them a hero, you hold them to a very high standard and you're like, we expect you to be a hero. But at the same time, you devalue the, the word hero. So there, there's a positive and negative aspect about that. The word honor, it's like a medal. When I talked about earlier that, that I lost respect for my superiors when they were too drunk and they didn't do their job, they didn't act honorable. So honor it's almost superhuman. If I honor you, I will hold you to a higher scrutiny in some ways. Or, and that's the other thing, it's something that I give you in a moment, not unlimited. And I have a good example for that from that male retreat again. At the end of the male retreat, we had to build a throne in the forest out of wood and out of things that we find and we had to decorate it so that it's worthy of a of a king so we built this throne and then each one of us had to sit on the throne and the others honored them but truthfully so you could also criticize but from a place of care and goodness and honor and we would say these are things that i don't like about you but i honor you for other things and it was a magical moment. And it, it was really meaningful where, where your brothers honored you. This honor, this camaraderie, something was created. And I don't think that 
we hold each other to a, a ridiculous high standard now. But in this moment, we were like, I see you. Oh my God, that's from Avatar. <laughs> I, I see you. And, and there was this, this moment of connection. I give you honor. And this is something very unique to, or very special to the military as well. My guys from the military, my comrades, they're not my friends. I don't know shit about their private lives. And I don't care, but they're my comrades. And if they need me, I'd be there immediately. And they didn't have to do anything to do that. All they had to do is, we're comrades, we're serving together. You have my back, I have your back. We gave each other a promise. And I don't care if you're a Nazi or there weren't Nazis, but I don't care if you're a Nazi or if you're a super left-leaning guy. Right here, we're comrades. And all the other shit doesn't matter. Actually, the main takeaway from the book that I've had so far is that it's really not that easy being a man. I mean, you asked me earlier if, if I found it difficult to read or listen to, and, and I said I didn't, but listening to these things does stress me out from time to time. And, and it makes me appreciate that I'm a woman more actually, because it just, it just doesn't seem very easy to be a man. It's like there's so much you have to do and so much you have to do right. So much you have to learn and express, but then stay in control of it and, and all that. So it is, it, it is quite tough. Mm-hmm. And it just really, really upsets me when, when feminists complain about how tough women have it. Because I, I, I really don't think women have had it any harder than men at any point in history. But I think you have every right to be envious. And I think that Feminism comes from a point of envy because, okay, here we go. And this is going to be taken out of context. You are the weaker sex. You are physically weaker. You are more emotional. You suffer. You have to bleed once a month. Um, Your skin is thinner. Your bones are weaker. You can't run as fast. You have to give birth to babies. I mean, not anymore, but you had to give birth to babies and you potentially died. And after this, this, this thing was born, you had to look after it for a long time and you were slave to that. You, women are slaves to their biology. So I think that feminists hate their femininity. They hate being slaves to nature. And I'm, I love the freedom that nature gave me, but it comes at a price. We constantly have to fight. We men constantly have to fight for our place in the world. And it's exhausting. And if you are not high on the hierarchy, well, you don't get respect. And, and without respect, we suffer. Look at the suicide rates. Look at the mortality men don't have it easier. Men, I would say men have it harder, but it's also really rewarding. I love being a man. It's, 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 it's tough. And I, it's, it's, I'm never, I'm not confident. And when I read the way of man, that's why I said it's challenging because Jack Donovan with on every page, he tells me that I'm shit. And he tells himself that he's shit because, I mean, you know what he looks like. I mean, he's like muscle bound and super strong. But every day he has to fight for his masculinity. Every single day. 
And even though people look up to him, he still feels insecure compared to other men. And, and these men that he looks up to feel insecure compared to other men. And they always think like, am I man enough? There are four men in my life that I really look up to. They were like my mentors in some ways, undeservably so. They were simply my mentors because they had natural masculinity and, and I was like, I want to be like them to Scotland and I built my house. And when I built the foundation of my house, I asked these four guys and some other people, friends of mine, to send me something from them. Something small, didn't matter what, because I wanted to put it into the foundation of my house. Because I said, because it's, it's not my homeland. I'm in a foreign land and I'm building a new life and I want to build my foundation on my friends and people that were important to me. And two of them, absolute fucking failures, failed to send me something. And I, I was like, dude, I know you're a shitty friend and, and I don't expect much from you, but this, this one thing I expect from you, send me something. They still didn't do it. But both of them, they didn't know each other. They both of them sent me the exact same answer in the letter. They said, Philip, I'm having a hard time with the fact that you moved to Scotland because you are doing what I would love to do. You're free and you're just starting a life, but I have a family and, and, and I have my job and you are an adventurer. And, and, I, and they pretty much said, I'm their inspiration and they are looking up to me they were my inspiration. And I'm like, what's going on? And, and another one of these three guys, I looked up to him and, well, no, that's not true. I didn't look up to him. I adored him and not him really. He, it was a projection. It was a projection. I, I saw in him what I wanted to be or, or what I wanted him to be like a big brother. Um, which wasn't fair because he couldn't be that. So I got angry with him. But while I was building my house with my own hands, without any knowledge, living in a garden shed for one and a half years with tonsillitis and my bed being wet and moldy. And it was, it was I cried myself to sleep every night, not out of sadness, out of exhaustion. My body was just collapsing. So while I built my life, he fucked up his marriage, lost his job. He, he had lied to me and to everybody because he was a drug addict at the time. And all of a sudden, this guy that I held up here was down there and he wanted to be my friend. And I'm like, you treated me like shit. Now you want to be my friend. So all of a sudden, all of this changed. Sorry, long story. What I'm saying is, as a man, you're never at the top and you always question yourself and you compete with yourself. You compete with your heroes. Your heroes compete with you. It's very exhausting. And especially if you're low on the packing order, I'm, I'm sure it's shit. I love it. I, I really like it, even though it's tough. It's tough, but I, I love it. <laughs> 
this is what feminists wanted. They basically wanted women to compete along the same hierarchy, and it just doesn't come as natural to women. I mean, I mean, all of the things you're describing, and I really love listening to this stuff, and I can kind of relate to it on some level through the men I know in my life, but me personally, I have no desire whatsoever to compete with anyone or to rise any higher. I mean, I, I have values and I have things that are important to me and I want to express myself. And obviously I want to want people to know about my work and all that. But, but, see, but I don't see, the think it's a vertical sort of hierarchy. But the thing is, to us, it's not, it doesn't, like to me, it doesn't feel bad. It feels beautiful. I, I, I see a man who, who is good at being a man and I want to be like him and I want to be, I want to be close to him, but I don't want to be better. It's like when you look at sport, for example, you like, like arm wrestling and stuff, it's okay to lose, but the competition itself is already beautiful. And, and it's the rough housing it's, it's real men don't put each other down they help each, like they put you down, but help you up and build you up and say like, hey, today you were better than yesterday. That's the beauty of male hierarchy, like, like healthy male hierarchy. Look at female hierarchies in the workplace. They're nasty. They're nasty. Male hierarchies in the workplace usually aren't nasty. You just fall into your place and you respect each other for what you're doing. Um, women aren't good at hierarchies. It creates a very strange dynamic when you have both men and women at a workplace. Yeah. It, it yeah. is very difficult to talk about, but it is true. And it just breaks my heart that men are being constantly told these days that these traditional masculine values or traits like aggression, competitiveness are undesirable and they should basically give up their place to women so that women can express these masculine qualities although most women are not going to be happy living their yeah. life and it is just so heartbreaking to see these women brainwashed into believing that that's really what they should aspire to and you can see you can see a man when he thrives in a boardroom you know like negotiations and all that and there are not all of them not all of them some of them all, not all men love that not, not all men want that um, but but the question is the question they are good at that but most oh, abso absolutely most women are not and generally men are more likely to to aspire to those roles for me the question is and and it's something that jordan peterson said it's not clear if men and women working together actually works because we have only done it for a very short time hello oh. <laughs> and and it is very true. It's extremely controversial, but who can argue but, but the, who's ever been in office with men and women? It's, it, it is possible that the only thing that works for men and women is actually some form of gender segregation in, not in all places, but in some places, so that you have female safe, like female safe environment, male safe environment, and then the family actually having the place where you can come together. Or, or like events and stuff like that. I mean, it's gonna be taken out of context too. Oh, of course, but I mean, look at look at Sweden, look at those Scandinavian countries where people are actually doing that, but just with their job choices. Yeah. So we've spoken a little bit about the struggles of men in the real world, expressing their emotions, but at the same time being expected to be strong. 
and all that. And suffering is an inevitable fact of human life. And I definitely see that expressed in your art. So I wanted you to talk a bit about that, your inspirations. So I think birth is death. So when we are born, I think we already, in some ways, we are thrown out of the womb into a world that is cold and where we already experience suffering in some ways. And I think for, for me, it was a bit different. I think that I'm not 100% I'm not human, which is absolutely fine nowadays because now you can identify as everything. Uh, back when I was born, I was like, well, because I identify as half angel. But now with transgenderism, that's absolutely fine because you can identify as a helicopter and everybody has to agree with that. So I, when I was born, I felt, after I was born, when I started growing up, I felt like I wasn't from here and that I was born to do a job. And I felt left alone in some ways because I felt like I'm, I'm not in my home. And... Uh, being here was hard because I felt disconnected in some ways from God. Not, not emotionally, I, I felt the connection. And I have to say, I'm not from a religious family at all. So that was just how, how I felt when I grew up. And when I was a kid, I actually, there was a short time when I thought I might be like Jesus coming back. And I was like, oh, I really don't want that. Because, I mean, we all know how it worked out the first time. And I didn't want to carry the weight of the world on my shoulders. I'm like, I'm okay to take responsibility and I'm okay with a certain amount of, of, of fighting and stuff, but I don't want to carry the weight of the whole world on my shoulders. But the image of Jesus on the cross for me was always something very inspirational and more beautiful than horrifying because for me, suffering is, is part of life and it's part of learning. And again, these were things that I knew as a child. I didn't learn them from anyone. I didn't hear about it. It was just what felt natural to me. And later on, uh, quite a few years later on, my mother was killed. She was shot by her second husband. And my brother and me, we were actually listening, listening to it over the phone while it happened. And so we heard the shots and then somebody hung up the phone and my brother called the police. Obviously we were freaking out. And uh, half an hour later, the police called us and told us that she's dead and that her husband killed himself as well. And I, I was crying for half an hour, 16. 16. And I was screaming and crying for half an hour. And then after the half an hour, that was out. And then immediately it was like, so what can you learn from that? Like you have this really intense situation of, of pain and there will be beauty in this and there will be the chance to learn from that. And that's just how I, that's just how I work. Like pretty much the whole thing of yin and yang. In, in every death, there is life. In every life, there is death. There is beauty and suffering. Um, 
Does that make sense? Oh, oh yeah. And, and to me, I love autumn. I love decay. There's something beautiful, something dignified in nature dying willingly and coming back next year because you know it's a, it's a circle and not fighting against it. And I would say that my art is embracing this, this part of life, um, the suffering, the, the death as a normal aspect of life. When you look at Day of the Dead in Latin America, they actually celebrate death because it's inevitable. And, and I don't celebrate it, but I, I embrace that part of life too. I can relate to all of that. I had the lowest point of my life about 18 months ago. And the reason I decided to carry on was that I, I just said to myself that I can't let all this pain be in vain. May I ask, Mask, you don't have to answer if it's personal, but what brought you to your lowest point? Love and heartbreak. Okay. Was it true love or was it obsession? Obsession. Okay. Did it was you? Like a form of addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've but never it... been addicted to anything else in my life. But love is probably the most addictive thing, anyway. But is but isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to have your heart ripped out? Uh, I think I think these. I mean, it's it's incredibly painful. But but if you if you don't go through this moment how can you learn about humanity if you haven't felt this this pain that's what i ended up telling myself and i ended up channeling these terrible emotions into poetry and art and that's what heard me through it had i not had that outlet i don't think i'd i'd still be here and it sounds like it's kind of similar with you too. And I do think all art is about expressing and channeling difficult emotions and, and kind of giving birth to it in a material form. Because I don't think true great art can be born out of happiness. You know, when you're happy, you just want to go out and have fun and talk to people and all that, want to look at the sky. But it's like you have to suffer for you to want to be in your own company and contemplate your misery and express it, right? So you said that you told yourself that... All sorry. the suffering would have been in vain. Yes. I just gave up. So you didn't, so you didn't feel it? You didn't know it? Did you have to kind of force yourself into a certain mindset or, or did it come naturally? It came naturally. It's always been in me. Because I started creating art when my mom died. And I was 14, you know, and my creativity has always been fed by pain. Mm -hmm. So it's it just been a given that that's what I have to do. But for a while, I was for a few weeks, I was almost paralyzed. I was unable to, I mean, it was a very, very deep depression. I was unable to really function properly. So it did take some real power. It did take an immense amount of strength to get myself to that place mentally. But it, it, it was obvious. It was just about get, gathering the strength to do what I had to do. Yeah. Boys, settle down. Sorry. 
was there was there beauty in the suffering or not? Well, it's one of the recurring themes in my my work. I I, I equate beauty with suffering. Uh, I do have this very romantic view of, of suffering, and most of the artists I admire have had serious issues. A lot of them committed suicide. So. Yeah, I would say yeah, that there was beauty. And that's kind of the purest form of beauty in a way because it's just so powerful and no one can really get it. It's just within you and it fills up your whole self, your whole essence, you just become one with it. But then it can destroy you. Yeah, that is, the, that is I think that might be the huge difference because um, it can't destroy me. I'm so full of hope and, and God in some ways and love that I don't think I can be destroyed. So experiencing certain moments of suffering for me is almost like a holiday. I'm very content. And then I allow emotions that are actually not that natural to me. I allow these emotions to take over and I kind of like, I dive into a pool of, of pain and sadness. You enjoy it. I don't enjoy it, but I, I cherish it. I, I'm like, wow, so this is what people feel like. Mm. Um, There's an element of that you're finally feeling something and experiencing yeah. the absolute extremes of emotion. Yeah. yeah. And you need to create really great art. Like if you look at the work of Edward Munch or Van Gogh, yeah, yeah. they had really extremes of emotion that most people can't even imagine. Yeah, I, I don't have that. I don't have that at all. I'm, I would say I'm, I'm almost like, I have a, almost like a f flat baseline, which is great in some ways, but it's also a bit annoying in, in other ways because, mm, 15 years ago, I had, I had a house, like a garden house, not a big one, just a small house, and it burned down. And I was standing in front of it, <laughs> it was like in flames burning down. And my father was standing next to me while the firefighters was, were putting down the fire. And I was just standing there and my dad was like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, do you, do you have a shock? And I'm like, no, why? And he was like, you're, you're completely calm. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I mean, my house is burning. And my dog wasn't in the house. So and I actually was thinking about two, two weeks prior to that. I was like, what would I do if my house was burning down? And I said, I think I'd be absolutely fine as long as my dog isn't in the house. And then exactly that happened. And I was completely fine. So I have this baseline. And... Sometimes when I have intense emotion, my, my last dog died two, two and a half years ago and it broke my heart. And I was so happy that it broke my heart because how much I, I loved this dog so much. He was with me for 15 years and he was truly my, my soulmate. And then, and then he died in my hands and I, I couldn't stop crying. And, and I couldn't control it. And it's so beautiful to not be able to control your emotions because most of the times I can just control my emotions. And, and this 
this overwhelming sensation, like almost having having a star in your heart or or having the ocean in your inside of you that you can't control and it's just rolling over you and no matter what you try to do it's just it was it was great and as a man and this is where masculinity comes in again but we have to learn to control it we have to and when my dog died people here in the village knew how close i was to my dog and i went to the pub a couple of days later and there were the firefighters i was one of them and all they said was, mate, sorry to hear about your dog. And one of them just put his hand on my shoulder and I could feel how the, like, the pain was coming up and the tears were coming up. And I was just like, they were here. And I just whoop, bottled them up and he just took his hand off. And I was like, thanks, mate. And for women, maybe that sounds like a bad situation but for me that was exactly what i needed like there's they were there in strength and they didn't expect me to break down and i would have hated to break down in this moment and then another friend of mine and he's the most stoic person in some ways that that i know like he's and he walked up to me and he told me a story how his dog died and that he went into his garage and that he was screaming for half an hour and his his wife could hear the screams but she wasn't allowed to to hug him or anything because it feels wrong for us in many ways we we have a different way of of dealing with that we have to face these demons and to me it was beautiful to me it was beautiful to 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 experience this this man this part of masculinity of 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 bottling up your emotions but then letting go of it in certain moments do these emotions help you create art or is it a separate process for you um it's a separate process i think that for me creating art is very controlled i don't let go and i could I could literally just sit down now and do a beautiful piece of art that is full of pain, but I'm not really feeling it. Um, so I would, I would say that my art in some ways is pretentious, but, but not really because I know the pain and I, I work with rusty metal and I work with, with found objects and I, I look at the rust, I look at the object and I ask it, what do you want to be? And then if I see something, I, I do it. And sometimes it's something dark or, or, or deep. And sometimes it's like a silly elephant with wings because that's what the rust told me to paint. But I just let go. I'm like, Oh, so that's what you want to be. And I paint it and it's much more of a technical process, I would say. And I would say, I don't paint it. I help the painting to become alive. And then it's done. And I'm like, oh my God, you're beautiful. And the longer I look at them, they start telling me different stories. And they are like, oh, that's what you want to be. 
and sometimes families come in and children say oh i see this in this painting or and and, and people give it a new meaning and i'm like oh my so there were these two couples they were coming in they were from israel and they saw the holocaust in some of my paintings and i never thought about the holocaust in my paintings and i'm like oh my god it's so beautiful that they can see have this deep connection and and see a different form of suffering in them to me it, to me it's beautiful and and I think the fact that I don't put my own suffering into the paintings actually makes them more open to people's interpretation, if that makes sense. Are you really sure that you don't put your suffering in there in some way? Men are supposedly good at compartmentalizing. Yes, we do. So you have it in you, but you just put it away somewhere deep in a box and don't you think that some of it just seeps into your work maybe i'm not the best artist uh, i can't do everything that i want to do simply because i have technical insufficiencies so to speak if i could i would love to do a painting of a man curled up like a na naked man curled up in a ball hovering in space, in nothingness, but I can't paint nothingness because no black is black enough to depict that. I would say if I would paint that now, I would paint a feeling that I had when I was younger. I don't have that feeling anymore. I don't feel isolated anymore. But you have the memory of it. I, I can remember it. I mean, I've been, a, I've been a vegetarian since I was 16, but I can, if I think of chicken, I, I know what the chicken tastes like. I can feel it on my tongue. And, and I can remember the pain that I felt in different situations, but it's not here anymore. It's an echo of the pain. That's why I say that in some ways it's pretentious because I remember it. It's, it's my pain, but it's an echo of my pain because I'm not the same person anymore. That's kind of what I meant. When, when I talked about that moment in the men's camp where I talked about the, that I wanted, would love to have a family and the pain that, the, yeah, the sadness that I don't have a family, that was pure. That was like, like that emotion all, all of a sudden just like came out of me and and I don't know if I could have painted a painting of that in that moment because it wouldn't be sufficient. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be as pure as the feeling. So to be honest, I think in some ways I prefer to do pretentious versions of what I feel because if I really wanted to paint what I feel, it, it, it wouldn't be the real deal. It wouldn't be... It, it's like, for example, I don't do I don't do landscapes, because if I would paint a landscape, it would never be as beautiful as the real thing. And I'm not an impressionist. I think impressionists really manage to paint the beauty of a landscape without really painting it, and that's their that's their beauty. I'm like, oh oh my god, I can feel the leaves, but you haven't even painted the leaves. 
uh, I can't do that. So I don't try. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. No problem at all. By the way, how do you, how do you react to movies, to movies and music? Do they make you feel emotional? It, it depends. My favorite films and music and art does, definitely. Okay. I think I'm more visual than anything else. So a beautiful image, a painting or a beautiful scene in a film makes me more emotional than music in general. But if the music resonates with me enough, then yeah, I, I, I cry quite easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't cry in real life. So uh, you can really... There are very few situations when I, when I cried. Um, obviously, when my dog died, a friend of mine told me about her abortion, and I, I cried a lot during that. But during movies, I cry quite a bit. And, but it's funny, I don't cry at sad things. I cry when I see hope. So, for example, when especially when men do something beautiful in a movie or when, when a father sees his son again, um, stuff like that. <sighs> yeah, that, that really gets to me. So um, I, I cry when somebody does something very heroic, um, so very selfless, um, that, that makes me cry, which, yeah, that's, um, I, I like that. Uh, it, I don't see that as weakness, for example. It's like, oh, I hate that when people say, oh, men are afraid to cry. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm not afraid to cry at all. But, um, but what you say about hope, I mean, I, again, that really resonates with me because I could never, I, I hate romantic films. Like when I saw the Titanic, I mean, I, I, ju I just couldn't cry when I see a film like that. The film that made me cry the most, and I cry every time I watch it, The People versus Larry Flint. Okay. <laughs> and it's like the most unlikely film that someone would huh? cry about, I guess. But the, one of the last scenes when he's in front of the Supreme Court, and he gives this incredible speech about the, the power of freedom a movie that definitely makes me cry a lot it's a movie from the 80s it's called powder i definitely recommend it it's about a man before he was born his mom was hit by lightning and his mom died during birth but because of the lightning he has kind of superpowers he has access to his brain and but he he comes he was born with white skin like completely white skin no pigment and purple eyes and no hair that happens in rural america and his father rejects him and his grandparents raise him but they raise him in in their cellar and then he is being discovered because his both of his grandparents die and then he's being discovered in the cellar and he has to go to, to an orphanage. So he's kind of a superhero, but he's also a super empath. He can touch people and know what they feel. And God, this movie makes me cry because he, like there's a hunter and he shoots a deer 
and powder touches the deer and touches the hunter and shows the hunter how the deer feels dying. And later on, the hunter, he tells the deputy, I, ca I can't bear a gun anymore. I, I, I can't. The thing is, the deputy, he's an asshole and he doesn't change. He's still an asshole, but he's like, I, I, I just can't use the, a gun anymore. And later on, and nobody trusts powder really, but the wife of the sheriff, she has cancer and she's almost in a coma and she's dying. And the sheriff brings powder to her and says, Don't spoil it though. Okay, okay, okay. You have to watch it. And like, even just telling the story, I'm like, like I already feel the tears <laughs> coming up it, because it's so beautiful and he's so full of hope and beauty and, 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 and connection with the world. Watch the movie. I, the only thing that's bad about the movie, um, Jeff Goldblum is in it and I think he's a shitty actor. <laughs> but besides that, it's a great movie. Okay, just one last quick question to finish. Because yes. you're wearing a Trump shirt. So yes. is Trump gonna win? Yes, absolutely. Trump is gonna win and there's gonna be a civil war. And I think that Trump is the most unlikely person to fight for the forces of good. And I think this is a really bizarre time because I think, and, and I'm not a super Christian Christian, but in the Bible, there are people that do the will of God that did horrible things before and they were the most unlikely people to, to actually do something. And I'm not saying that God tells Trump to, to do certain things, but he's fighting for the, for this, for the good side. And, but I don't think he's a good person. I think he is a narcissist maybe, and I, he's, he's pompous and, and he's an asshole, but he's, he, he does the right things at the right time, so. I mean, we started out by talking about how you can separate the person from the actions. And I guess yeah. one full circle in the case of Trump, you must be Absolutely. able to it. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think maybe maybe he's redeeming himself. I think, I think he is a different person now than he was many years ago, as, as am I. So thank you so much for the conversation. I hope it wasn't too long. I know it was a very long take, but I think I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much.